Hello. Hey, Kelsey. All right. I want to ask you, have you ever found yourself going head to head with a know-it-all? Oh, for sure. For sure. I work in a place that's like everything's entirely subjective. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. entertainment is subjective. Beauty is subjective. uh, Fashion is subjective. So I'm just around people who are, you know, absolute know-it-alls. The people that design clothing (laughs) would say, it needs to be worn this way. But then the people who are wearing it say, it needs to be styled this way. And then Mm. the people that want to document it say, it needs to be photographed this way. So I think everybody's kind of a know-it-all because they, well, at at least in my industry, I think everybody wants their hand in it to make it its best. Well, today we've got a story of two different know-it-alls going head-to-head over something that's maybe not worth it in the end. Okay. (laughs) So this story has a bunch of different stuff. It's got weird, petty, rich dudes in the 1800s with too much time on their hands. Mm -hmm. We got scientific fan clubs. And we got textbooks being filled with a bunch of lies that live on for generations and for no reason. Isn't that all textbooks? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, kind (laughs) of. History is written by the victors, I suppose. Uh Uh-huh. From Sony Music Entertainment, this is Fierce Rivalries with me, Delta Work. And with me, Kelsey Padgett. Each week, I tell Delta the true story behind an infamous or an underrated rivalry with all the dramatic and sometimes petty twists and turns. And then I'll declare the winner, but not every story has a victor. Sometimes it's just about who loses more. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, so Delta, you gave us a look into the world of know-it-alls in the entertainment industry. But today, our know-it-alls are thriving in a different industry altogether, the industry of natural science. Okay. And this is an area where subjectivity and opinions should be ruled out, and it should be hard facts, right? Well... Our rivalry today is between John James Audubon and Charles Waterton, two cocky, weird, rich dudes who adventured around a lot in nature and were big know-it-alls themselves. They disagreed about something that seems pretty inconsequential to me, but it had the whole bird world up in arms, or really up in feathers. In the 1800s. Yep, the 1800s. The 1820s, to be more specific. Now, at the center of this big fight between these two nerds is what might be the world's nastiest bird. Which is? The vulture. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Do you like vultures, Delta? They seem so scary. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, so vultures are scavengers. Their scientific name, which is Catharetus Aura means purifying breeze. Okay. So purifying breeze, why why would their name mean that? Well, they play a really important part of most ecosystems by 
getting rid of rotting and disease-ridden flesh. Mm -hmm. They have, like, a lot of acid in their stomach, so they're able to eat up dead stuff that's, like, infected with all the worst things. Like, they can eat, you know, a raccoon that's died of rabies, and they won't get rabies themselves, or something that's died of tuberculosis, and they just sort of get rid of that disease, whereas... If, you know, we didn't have the vultures, that would still lay there and rot and, you know, maybe infect other people. So they are this purifying breeze, which is so, so weird to me. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the end, that, that's that, their goal is that. Yeah. But the whole process is so disgusting nasty. and stinky. And right? <laughs> so they are these heroes of sanitation is my sort of rebrand. <laughs> For the vultures, they're they're nature's garbage collectors. Vulture is like a a term we use in our culture to mean things too, right? Mm-hmm. What is there anybody you think of or like a way of being you think of when you hear the word vulture? Just like a really, really sort of savage business person would be like a vulture, oh, pretty dastardly. You know, like, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I guess I too also mean like they're not going to take the best, they're going to take uh, any <laughs> right. and everything. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you, they're scavenging. So, whatever you've got, I want it. I'm going to make use out of it. If it's good, if it's bad, mm-hmm. I don't care. I need all of it. Right. Greedy, maybe. Yes. All right. Well, I think in the US, there's three types of vultures there's the, the black vulture, the turkey vulture, and the uh, condor which is huge, and they have those out in California. You ever seen any of those? Wait, a California condor is a vulture? Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. Stop it. Mm-hmm. That's considered like the royalty of birds. Obviously, that's the California condor is like yeah. the thing here. I never knew that was a vulture. Mm-hmm. Wow. A turkey vulture. Yeah, I've seen that. And that is ghastly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're definitely not winning any beauty contests. So, you know, turkey vultures, they have these bald, reddish heads and necks with no feathers on them. They kind of look like uh, they have a turkey's head. That's that's how they got the name. And the reason that they don't have feathers on their head and neck is because of scavenging. And they use their beak to, to get at stuff. And so if they had feathers on their face and neck, they would get, you know— Gross. Messy. Yeah. And nasty with the detritus of what they eat. Ew. I know. (laughs) It's gross. (laughs) There is this question, though, about the vultures that started this huge fight, which is how do they find the dead stuff? Maybe they have a really good sense of smell and, and they know where it is just based on the sense of smell, I guess. That thought was the common thought at the time in the 1800s, and that's what this whole fight starts to be over. There's one guy who says, no, 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 I have decided it's not smell, that they Mm. find dead stuff by sight. It's their eyes. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Oh. And it seems like a weird thing to fight over, but once you know about our rivals, about our characters here, I think it'll make a little more sense. So, have you ever heard the name Audubon? I have, the Audubon Society. That's yes. right, Audubon Society. I always felt like that was, like, fancy. You know, it, mm-hmm. me- it meant something like not everybody gets to participate in that. So oh, next level. it's the Audubon Society. People. It's fancy. Yes. Anything society always suggests that. <laughs> well, Audubon Society is a group dedicated to birds and bird conservation. Um, and they sold this clock on TV that had all these different birds as the different hours. 
And I actually have this clock. <laughs> I want to show you. You have it there? Uh-huh. Oh, it's so pretty. This was uh, my wife's uh, grandmother's clock. That's pretty. Yeah. It doesn't work anymore. But apparently when it worked on the hour, it would do a different bird call. Oh, I love that. So that's how I got introduced to Audubon. But but yes, you're right. Audubon Society is a, a group of people who are named after a person. And that person is John James Audubon. So like when I hear that, I'm like, oh, right. Very elegant. Very, you know prestigious i feel like his name yes and like oh he's a nature loving you know explorer type they're do-gooders but i would say that mr john james audubon not the guy i thought he was <laughs> after looking into this uh-oh he's a bit of a show-off and a little bit of a troll oh like a pre-internet troll <laughs> okay okay so he's a famous bird guy in the 1820s we're like 50 years after the founding of the country, right? But we're 40 years before the Civil War. This is before social media, so he wasn't tweeting. No, he wasn't <laughs> tweeting. <laughs> so he grew up in a wealthy family in France. His family, they owned plantations and mines. He was sent to the U.S. when he turned 18 so that he wouldn't be drafted in the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. In the U.S., he oversaw his family's interests and eventually married a woman who came from a similarly well-off landowning family. So he was a fancy guy and a terrible racist. He spoke out against abolition and he owned and sold enslaved black people. Mm. So uh, while being a fancy man with slaves doing his work, he had leisure time to observe nature and pursue art. So since his childhood, he'd been very interested in birds, and he would draw and paint them. Eventually, this hobby became a bit of an obsession, and he decided that he wanted to paint the portraits of every single bird in America. Okay, that's a goal. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I feel like that's, that's a, a lot. So he gets obsessed, and he said, I'm going to paint every bird in America. Is he good at painting? They're not bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, being gentle. <laughs> I, I think they're they're good enough, you know what I mean, okay. to be like, oh, that's what that bird looks like, you uh, know? It's a point of view. Yeah. And by the way, when he paints these birds, it's not just that he goes out and looks at the bird and paints them, right? Birds birds move quick. Uh-huh. He kills the birds. Oh. <laughs> so he's hunting, killing the birds, bringing them home, and then painting them. That's really selfish. Yeah. He doesn't love them that much. Right. I would agree. And apparently he, like, revolutionized a way to, like, make them look lifelike while they're still dead so that he can paint from them. He paints about 300 of them, which is an accomplishment. Yeah. He brings those 300 paintings over to London and shows them off. And people loved them. They ate it up. They were like, oh, this is excellent. Oh, these birds from America. I've never seen this bird. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I feel like it was kind of like, one of those things that just hits at the right moment, you know, like, um, do you remember fidget spinners? <laughs> I do. Yeah. That was a thing. Right? Like fidget spinners would not have worked like 10 years earlier or 10 years later, I feel like. But like in 2017, it was just the right moment. So I feel like his his paintings were sort of that. Like he caught this moment of time where people in London were like, oh, the birds of America, how exotic. Oh, let me look. 
Um, so he see, there's these voices you do. <laughs> They're good. They're I know, great. No, no. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so he took these paintings to, to London, showed them off to a bunch of people, and started to get funding to make a book, a publish, you know, a book with all of these paintings of birds in them. Mm-hmm. The book would be called The Birds of America. And when finished, the book would feature 435 life-size prints of his art. And, you know, this is why we know the name Audubon, because of this book he did. It was really important to the bird world, the bird-studying world, (laughs) and is why we get things like a clock and a society named after him. So this is like a very cool thing he did, right, to paint all these birds. But he also did some other less cool things. He, You know, like I said, he was quite the showman. He lied and embellished about a lot of things. Like, he made up biographical details about himself. Okay. He claimed his mother was a wealthy European woman who was killed in a slave rebellion. In actuality, his mother was either one of two women, uh, either this French chambermaid or a mixed-race housekeeper. In the text that I read, they're both called mistresses. But remember that his father owned this plantation and these women worked on it. So the power dynamics make this messy and complicated. If, though, it was the mixed-race housekeeper who was his mother, that would mean that Audubon was not entirely of European descent. So all the racism throughout his life could be seen as, you know, self-loathing and anxiety to prove his whiteness. No matter who his mother was, what we do know is that she died after he was born and he was raised by his father's wife and given the family name. Was the family name Santos or is that? (laughs) Yes, this is. This is uh, George Audubon Santos. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Another thing that he made up throughout his life is that he made up some animals, which is a big no-no if you're going to be like the scientific, like, I'm going to paint every bird in America, right? Like a jackalope? <laughs> I wish. Oh, I love a jackalope. I wish he had made right? up some, like, cryptids. They're, they are less interesting than that. <laughs> um, but the reason he made up a uh, species of animals was to fuck with one of his friends slash competitors. Um, He made up different fish and rodents. Uh, One of the rodents was called a big-eyed jumping mouse. Okay. Uh, The three-striped mole rat. One of the fish he made up was called the 10-foot-long devil jack diamond fish, which supposedly had bulletproof scales. And was this like to make other people go look for these animals or something? So basically he was telling his friend, like, here are animals I saw, and since you're writing about the animals of of America as well, you can write about these via my testimony, basically. So basically, like, put this in print. So it's just, like, real shady and mean of him, you know? Eleven of the fish that he tricked his friend with stayed on the books as legitimate animals for about 50 years. Wow. Before anybody figured it out. Wow. Liar. You know, another shitty thing Audubon did was he stole the idea of making a book documenting all the birds of America from from this guy named Alexander Wilson. He had already put out a book like that. And Audubon was like, oh, cool. I'm going to do it and do it better and take it to London and tell everybody, here's my new thing. <laughs> and did the other guy draw paint or draw these birds yeah. as well? Yeah, he did. Oh, I yeah. wonder if it was a better book. You know, his art is like slightly less good. But not, like, enough for it to have mattered, I think. Okay. 
So I really think it was just, you know, Audubon being a showboater and being, like, charismatic and, like, selling the thing that got him the more success, you know, instead of this other guy. Audubon is a cocky guy. So his next move will not be surprising to you that he publishes an article trying to disprove all common knowledge and previous scientific understanding of vulture behavior. He publishes an article called, and this is a little long for a scientific article, I feel. Okay. An account of the habits of the turkey buzzard, particularly with the view of exploding the opinion generally entertained of its extraordinary power of smelling. Way too long. That's the first paragraph. (laughs) Right? Despite its length. It's kind of clickbaity because it's like the exploding the opinion generally entertained of the extraordinary power of smelling. So it's kind of like this fact about vultures will blow your mind. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Okay, so this article, in it, he claims that one day he comes upon a vulture uh, when he's out doing his hunting and painting, right? Comes upon a vulture. He realizes that the vulture doesn't know he's there. It hasn't been alerted yet. So he's like, why hasn't this vulture been alerted? Why isn't this turkey turkey vulture looking at me? And so he creeps up on it and he's like, shouldn't it be able to smell me by now if it's got this powerful sense of smell and fly off? But he was able to get very close to the vulture and then it only flew off after like directly seeing Audubon. They made like Mm. eye contact. So that's where he got the idea. He was like, I don't think vultures can smell as good as we think because he can't smell me right now. Okay, <laughs> so he cooks. But they only they're they're smelling rot, right? So like he's not rotting. You're gonna see Audubon's got some flawed ideas here. There's like I could poke a thousand holes in why that logic is weird, you know? Right. So he comes up with some very armchair expert sort of experiments that he's going to run to find out the truth behind the smelling of the vulture. So he gets a deer hide. And he stuffs it with hay, and he sews it up, and he gives it little eyeballs made of clay so that it looks realistic. Mm -hmm. And he poses it like it's dead in a field. And then he waits. Okay. Eventually, he sees a vulture fly down. So basically, the bird came down and pecked at it and saw that it wasn't a dead deer, and then he flew off. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Of course, Audubon's reveling in this because he's like, he shouldn't have come to this at all if he's hunting by smell. Duh, bird. So after this, he did an experiment, which I'm calling stinky hide and seek. And I want to point out here, these experiments that he's doing, he's not doing the labor for these experiments. No, he's fancy man. He has his enslaved people that are doing the work for him. Of course he does. And it's a shame that we don't get to know those people's names because, you know, if this is scientific progress as it was seen at the time, like, those people should be, you know, counted for having worked on it. Right. But we don't get to know any of that because racism. So anyway, here's Stinky Hide and Seek. He has a pig killed and it's hidden in a ravine under some brush all covered up. And he was like, okay. If the vultures hunt by smell, they'll show up. They'll get this stinky dead pig. But no vultures came. Why? Maybe they're not hungry. Maybe they had enough hayfield deer. (laughs) Okay, so what happens? Okay, so he has one more weird little experiment he does. (laughs) He raises some baby vultures 
and he hand feeds them each day. Not really by hand. He has like a pole that he puts some meat on and brings it to them so he doesn't get, you know, eaten himself. He said every time he approached to feed them, they would get excited and they would hiss. And I I thought to myself, I don't know what that sounds like. Delta, what do you think that sounds like? It sounds like, um, I think it's something like that. I think it builds up from a hiss. No, there's no we in it. I think it's something like that. I love it. I love that. You like it? Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> so he comes around the food, and they would do that every time they, they saw him, right? Uh-huh. But then he built up a way where he could come around the side, be near to them with the meat, but they couldn't see him. He had, like, built up, like, a like a screen or something. Okay. And if they could smell it, you know, he would expect that they would do the sounds, right? Right, right. But no, they didn't do it until they saw him. Da, da, da. <laughs> but didn't he, so he's trained them to do this. But to, to him, he, that, that gives him the conclusion. The power of smelling in these birds has been grossly exaggerated. And that if they can smell objects at, a, at, a, at any distance, they can see the same objects much further. And therefore they hunt by sight, not by smell. If he's training these birds, I don't know. I kind of feel like they're like, we don't make those noises. We're not really scavengers. We're being, we don't have to go look for the food. Like we can, it's just going to be given to us. Right. We can smell it. We're not dumb. (laughs) We can smell that there's food there. (laughs) So we're going to, I guess, do whatever we have to do in order to get the food. Right. I feel like if they smelled it and they don't make the sound, that makes sense because they would only make the sound when they see him because he's the one giving yeah. the food. Like, they could still smell yeah. it. Like, that doesn't mean they can't, you know? He writes that that this idea that the vultures have this great sense of smell is the mere assertions of men who have never seen more than the skins of our vultures or heard the accounts from men caring little about observing nature closely. Basically saying... Everybody who thinks they know about vultures, they're not looking at them in the wild. They're just looking at dead corpses of vultures, and they're not watching carefully. They're posers, and they half-ass their observations. (laughs) Well, one man did not take that lightly, and he is going to write some rebuttals to Audubon. Okay, this is the one. Well, we're going to find out after the break. Dun-dun-dun. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, now our rival appears. This man is named Charles Waterton. Waterton was also a fancy man, a showboating adventurer type. He also owned enslaved people at the time. He got famous for his taxidermy and for starting the first wild bird sanctuary. Okay. Um, here are some wild stories about him. He once tied up a 14-foot boa constrictor with his suspenders and then stowed the snake in a bag under his hammock with the quote, I cannot say he allowed me to have a quiet night. And then this is from his biography. He boiled a toucan, talked to insects, fought with snakes, apostrophized woodpeckers, phlebotomized himself, offered his toe to the vampire bats, and indulged in all manner of scientific monkey business with the primates. Can you imagine, like, saying, oh, I just boiled a toucan. <laughs> what did you do last night? <laughs> boiled a toucan. What else am I going to do on a Tuesday? I apostrophized some woodpeckers. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I think maybe they're, like, you know, making it sound a little more glorious or more ghoulish. Yeah. Okay, so Waterton, he, like, was a master of taxidermy. Um, he he invented, like, new techniques. And Waterton generally was seen as, like, a, you know, even though he's got wild stories, he he mostly did the things he said he did. So I think it's fair to say Audubon was not a scientist. He was a painter right. and an adventurer. Similarly, Waterton, not a scientist. He was a taxidermist and an adventurer. Right. But at this time in history, you could sort of be a self-taught scientist. The lines between, you know, a lay person and, like, rigorous science was was less, was more porous, right? Um, right. This was at a time period which if you called yourself a doctor, you could be a doctor. Yeah, no though, one was checking. Like, right. no one was – Yeah. there's nobody, there's no – ombudsman mm -hmm. that, like, comes in and is like, no, these behaviors are not right. Right, right. Yeah, and especially if you're, like, a rich white dude. So, Audubon has no formal tr uh, scientific education, neither does Waterton. They're just both eccentric dudes. In order for your ideas to affect the scientific world, it was more important how well you wrote and who your friends were. So if you're charismatic and if people are interested in you, then you're going to have a big effect. So that's what Audubon did, right? When he went to London and sold his paintings and he was like, ah, Bigger the yes, better. yes. Look at, look at my beautiful paintings. Um, do you remember that he stole that idea? I had said that earlier. From the other person. Yeah. Well, guess who's friends with the other person? Waterton. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, Audubon, I don't like you. I don't like this guy. And so when Audubon publishes this vulture paper, he's already like, Fuck Audubon. He stole the idea from my friend, and I hate him. And you know what? I know turkey vultures, and I know they hunt by smell. I've been out in the wild too, sir. So he publishes his own article. He says, bullshit. Turkey vultures hunt by smell. We've all seen it. It's been a scientifically accepted theory for as long as we've known about turkey vultures. Here's a little snippet from his sassy article. I never thought that I should have lived to see this bird deprived of its nose. 
I grieve from my heart that the vulture's nose has received such a tremendous blow, because the world at large will sustain a great loss by this sudden and unexpected attack upon it. Mm. Now, as the vulture has not been killed by the artillery of this modern writer, Audubon, but has only had its nose carried away by an explosion, I will carefully gather up the shattered olfactory parts and do my best to restore them to their original shape and beautiful proportions. So basically, he writes a rebuttal in which he's trying to be as charismatic and shitty as Audubon. Right. And so this is when the rivalry really gets into gear. This is Waterton saying to Audubon, it is on. (laughs) And like you can see, he's like playing on Audubon's cute title of being of exploding the idea of the vulture sense of smell. But he's doing it like a ham-fisted sort of way that just I don't think he's as good of a writer as Audubon was. And that's saying a lot because remember Audubon's clickbait article was like hard to read. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think that uh, that Waterton was just not as as like well liked Mm -hmm. and his stuff didn't come as cross. So, you know, Audubon has this like benefit of his fame and of the charisma that comes through in his writing. So yeah, it, his has like a, a flourish to it. Yeah. And the other one just seems like unnecessarily flowery. Just sounds like, I'm going to throw a bunch of words out here. Yeah. And kind yeah. of specifically bitter, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Definitely. Um, so, Waterton publishes this article that's just like, bullshit. And so, like, you expect that Audubon is going to, you know, say something back. Is he going to just sit there and take this disrespect? Well... Audubon was super smart and like a celebrity with a good PR team does not respond directly. He, you know, like I said, more famous than Waterton is like, why reply publicly to this guy? Why am I going to give him the time of day? That's going to make his opinion have more weight than if I just didn't. So instead of that, a group of Audubon supporters head up by one of Audubon's, like, best friends, they start uh, defending Audubon's claims (laughs) for him, basically. And all of this over bird smell. Who gives a shit? (laughs) Mm -hmm. They don't have anything else going on. Right, right. You know, it's fun to be rich in the 1820s, I guess. You got time to go do bird experiments. Mm. Gross. Uh, Waterton, you know, he's like, okay, weird that you've got a group of supporters I'm going to call them the Anti-Nosarians, and my supporters will be the Nosarians, which I think is, like, shows off how uncharismatic Waterton is. Like, what do you think Uh of those two names for the two groups? (laughs) I mean, I think this is the precursor to Gozer the Gozerian. Oh! (laughs) Yes, what is that from? It's from Ghostbusters? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the gatekeeper, Gozer, yes. Gozer the Gozerian. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I like all that. that. But yeah, I mean, come on. Think of something more creative. Right. That's it. Nozarians and the anti-Nozarians. And, and, and I would like to point out, vultures, whether or not they have a sense of smell, do not have noses. They have, they have a beak. beaks. <laughs> so what the hell? <laughs> Anyway, so we got the anti-Nosarians, that's Audubon's people, and the Nosarians, those are Waterton's people. The anti-Nosarians, they get together and they rerun the experiments that Audubon had, you know, talked about in his published article. 
But this time, they did it with an audience, a learned group of citizens, who in turn signed a document to the effect that they had witnessed the tests and were thoroughly convinced the vulture lacked a sense of smell. Well, this is still, I feel like this is still this thing where because they have money and because there is no one to sort of counteract them, like if it's just some person, some farmer came up and said, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Well, you don't have any money. You don't know any better. Yes. We have money. We are the learned because we have money. We are the learned group of individuals who are providing our testimony. We are a society of gentlemen. Mm Mm-hmm. In addition to doing the experiments that Audubon had done, they made up some new ones, too. One, which is, I think, the the funnest one, is they took a large canvas and they had it commissioned that someone would paint a realistic-looking sheep skinned and cut open like it had just died. Mm -hmm. And then they put that canvas out into a field as an art in the middle of a field. Okay. And they waited. And then, oh, they claim that they saw a group of vultures descend and start trying to tear at the painting and get the sheep guts. On a piece of paper. <laughs> On the piece of paper, right. Which I think is a hilarious image, but I don't know if that happened. <laughs> they are so full of shit, and they just want people to believe, like, what they're doing is somehow scientific, Yes, way, I guess. They want people to think like, oh, you're, you're just, you know, you're so in tune with nature and you've really done these very serious studies. <laughs> yes. And the reality is that they could probably get all this information from actual farmers. Right. They can ask the farmers, what do you see on a daily basis? What happens out here? Well, that's good you said that because that takes us to the Nozarians. Waterton, he replied to this these learned group of citizens by saying, for believing in such sloppy science, they ought to be whipped. Oh, well, they like they like all that at that time. Apparently, yeah. He wrote this sassy little article, which I'll read to you now, in my best Waterton voice. Yes, please. I am now quite prepared to receive accounts from Charleston of vultures attacking every shoulder of mutton sign in the streets, or attempting to gobble down the painted sausages over the shop doors or tugging with might and main at the dim and faded eyes of some decaying portrait of the immortal Dr. Franklin. Basically <laughs> saying, if this is true, if these birds went after this canvas, why don't they go after the sign above the meat shop that has the, yep. the ham hock? Why don't they attack, you know, I don't know, the meat delivery truck that has the painted sausages on it? They know that those things aren't real, and so they're not out here attacking art. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I'm just, I, I'm so confused. Why are they so pent up about this? Like, why is this the argument? Why <laughs> is this the main concern? I think it's about pride at this point, right? It's about Audubon being right. It's about, for Waterton, it's about, fuck this Audubon guy. He stole this idea for this book from my friend, and... There's only one room for one showboater in this town, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I guess so. But I'm just, what people, people with money do the weirdest things. <laughs> truly, truly. So like you were saying, like, you know, ask any farmer, they're going to know the answer. Well, that's that's what happened. Waterton, the people who supported Waterton were less of like a learned group of citizens running experiments. There were people writing in and just being like, no, this is what vultures do. I've seen them all my life do this thing. So he got this one 
a doctor. He was he was in Jamaica, and at the time he was in charge of being the undertaker for the town. So okay. he would take care of the bodies of people once they passed. On one occasion, I had to make a post-mortem examination of a body within 20 hours after a death in a mill house, completely concealed. And while so engaged, the roof of the mill house was thickly studded with these birds. So the birds were on top of the building when he went and looked at a dead body. All right. Another instance was that of an old patient and much-valued friend who died at midnight. The family had to send for the necessaries for a funeral to Spanish town, distant 30 miles, so that the internment could not take place until noon of the second day, or 36 hours after his decease. Long before which time, and a most painful sight it was, the ridge of the shingled roof of the house, a large mansion but of one floor, had a number of these melancholy-looking heralds of death perched thereon. The birds must have been directed by smell alone, as sight was totally out of the question. I love heralds of death. Heralds of death, yes. I love that. You can see it. (laughs) Right? So he's like saying, you know, there's dead bodies. The birds show up. Like, this is clearly, they can Uh smell it because they cannot see it. These people are inside the house and nobody called them. Nobody said, hey, hey, ring, ring, vultures, here's a dead body. Right. They're doing it by smell. So- We've got the Nosarian evidence and we've got the anti-Nosarian evidence. I think you're pretty swayed. How do you think vultures find their dinner, Delta? With their beak. Okay. They gather that smell up with their beak. They know what it is. I think they can probably smell it from miles and miles away. And they, I would think they would even be able to tell what kind of animal or what how much smell is coming out of something mm-hmm. means that's how much more there is to gather. Mm, like in how long they've been decaying, mm-hmm. perhaps? Like, if this is going to be a good eat or Mm -hmm. not a good eat. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Well, Delta, that answer makes you way smarter than everybody in 1820. (laughs) Because despite Waterton's best efforts, the charisma and fame of Audubon won over the scientific establishment. Everyone agreed with Audubon. These dumb birds can't smell. (laughs) Or maybe they barely smell. And so they only find their food via sight. And Audubon's never swayed from this. No, no. And this went on to be agreed upon for the next hundred years. Wow. It was not until 1959 when a scientist finally disproved Audubon. I wonder how they were able to disprove it for enough people to believe it. We'll find out right after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So, you do you have a gas stove in your house? Uh, yes. So, you know that gas is stinky, right? Yes. Well, you might not know, they add that smell to the gas. Oh. Yeah, it's not naturally occurring 
They add it so that people can know if there's a gas leak, right? Because you don't okay. want to get exploded. Otherwise, the gas would just be uh, odorless and therefore more dangerous because we okay. wouldn't know if there was a gas leak. So, anecdotally, people who worked on the natural gas lines would say, oh, after they've added this smell, we, we always see groups of vultures when there's a gas leak uh, in the line. What's that about? When the scientist, he was like, well, yeah, what is that about? The chemical that they put into natural gas is the same as one chemical that is emitted by decomposing carcasses. And was he still around when they... No. no he wasn't around. That's no. impossible. Oh, his great-grandkids must have been embarrassed. <laughs> right? So isn't that crazy? And then in 2017, 2017, a recent year, <laughs> scientists uh, doubled down on this, proving that turkey vultures have huge olfactory bulbs, which is the part that smells in your brain, the, the smelling part of your brain, and that mm -hmm. adjusted for brain size, they have the largest olfactory bulb amongst all birds. Yeah, I mean, we, we knew all along that was true. I mean, it had to be true. Right. The real kicker. <laughs> Scientists now believe that not only was Audubon wrong about this, I mean, obviously we've proven that the turkey vulture hunts by smell, Right. He was looking at the wrong bird. Bye. <laughs> what was he looking at? He was looking at a black vulture, not a turkey oh. vulture. <laughs> Which are a different size and have black heads, not red heads. Right. So it's not that easy to confuse the two. I mean, you could confuse the two, but it's... <laughs> Isn't that weird that he was basically just like... I'm into this, and whatever I just kind of throw out there, like, I'm just going to make sure that people believe me. I'm not going to really—I'm not available for another viewpoint or another, like, oh, I didn't know that study. I should incorporate that study into what I'm studying mm -hmm. and see, like— you know, I mean, isn't that your goal is to, like, try to disprove the things that you can disprove and, right. and not amplify things and go, how long can I hide this? Increase scientific knowledge. That was not his goal. His goal was to be At a showboater. His goal was to be the best bird guy, you know? <laughs> right. So you remember how he says that he saw the vulture swoop down and pick up that garter, garter snake that was no bigger than a man's finger? Yes. Um, turkey vultures don't do that. They, they don't have the feet for it because um, they have those like little chickeny feet. They don't have the feet to swap up a thing, but black vultures do. They do hunt by sight sometimes. Um, uh, they do have smell too, but not as much smell as the turkey vulture. The thing is too is that like, this is so separate, but like the turkey vulture, <laughs> they look, uh, that's whenever somebody says a vulture, it's always the description is a turkey vulture. Right, yes. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's this not is a condor, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And they look in, in, in illust or in cartoon animation exactly the way they look in person, which mm -hmm. is crazy, mm -hmm. fully crazy. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I could see, I could kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he thought that Black Vulture was the female form. Or maybe he okay. thought it was like a juvenile or something but like that. But he didn't care. That's the thing. He didn't give a shit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he could have just been like, oh, it's a black duck. That's a vulture. That's fine. Because <laughs> that's what's in the area today when I'm pretending to do my study. <laughs> this vulture over here has a red tail uh -huh. and talons. It's not a red-tailed hawk. No, no, it's a vulture today. No. Yeah. <laughs> 
You'll believe me because I have money. I'm rich. Why would I lie to you? Why would I lie to you? Here's my my final thought is both these men spent their days being racist assholes, adventuring, killing birds, and playing with their corpses in search of fame or knowledge, quote unquote. <laughs> um, vultures have this bad reputation, but they provide this important heroic service to all of us. They are purifying breeze. And I think that we should rename them. Um, or at least we should all know that they are also called the purifying breeze. The purifier. <laughs> the purifier. All right, Delta. So in the story of Audubon versus Waterton, who wins this rivalry? They both lost this, but I think uh I think old Audubon like really, really Yes. Really fell apart. I mean, your name is on like the society. It's on this freaking cutesy clock. It's on the clock. And you're uh, an asshole. And, and you're awful. Yeah. Gross. Ugh. We should rename racist men who play with dead things for fun. We should name those people vultures. Hmm? The Autodumb <laughs> Society. <laughs> you dumbass. <laughs> From Sony Music Entertainment, this is Fierce Rivalries, hosted by me, Delta Work. And me, Kelsey Padgett. I also produce the show. Gabriella Santana is our associate producer. Caitlin Pierce and Megan Dietrich are our editors. Tiffany Walker is our managing producer and editor. Our production coordinators are Sasonia Davenport and Tamika Balance Kolosny. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. John Scott is our engineer. Our executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Caitlin Pierce, and Megan Dietrich. TJ Raphael was our development producer. 